This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Hallowell and Chris Field, the Church Boys. From the sublime to the ridiculous, but mostly ridiculous. And I hate these guys. Well, it must it must be the weekend because I'm feeling good about myself finally. And uh, I see that my friend Billy is here. We're here on Skype, so if it craps out on us, you can blame that or you can blame Billy because either is very possible. Billy, <laughs> how long did we spend trying to get your microphone to work? And we just what we discovered was that there was a just simply a Oh, a microphone plug-in problem. Like actually not like <laughs> uh, a not like a plug time. not like a plug-in that you load onto your computer, but like the actual physical plugging in of work. the microphone. It doesn't work working, and I blame the work, blaze. Working now this computer the blaze owns. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. It's the blaze's a, fault. <laughs> we got a whole we got a whole buttload of stories. Am I allowed to say buttload? I think we're allowed okay. to say it. Um, you know what? I heard Glenn say buttload on the air like this week or last. Did you hear him say that? He I did used, not. He actually used the word buttload. It was great. Uh, anyway, so we've got a whole buttload of stories for you today. Uh, and I don't know what we'll actually get to. We've got stuff scheduled, right? And we've got a couple of great interviews. We've got interviews with an author and some Jesus guy and who says that you should, what did he say? Something about gay weddings and how, the appropriate way to, way to dress going to gay weddings or something like that. So <laughs> not what no, it's about. That's not what it's about. Okay. Close, co- close. Okay. Close enough. So we have that. We've got a couple great interviews coming up for you. We also have some fun stories and one of them, um, well, it's about, it's about a woman's hymen and we'll just go ahead and leave the tease there. But before we do that, there's, there was a, there was something that happened at the blaze, uh, at the blaze DC bureau <laughs> over the last, well, I'd say about a month. And um, it was a, a situation being handled by our managing editor, Madeline Morgenstern, and Gildan Krantz, our dad. And do you know that story, by the way? Have you ever read that play? Rosencrantz, yes. Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are dead. Our dad, yeah. Every time I see her, I always just call her M.M. Because I, can't, for one, can't spell her name correctly, her Madeline. Because she spells, you know, with the, there's like a couple numbers and a Q in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> but I can't spell Madeline. So I, we just, we all call her M.M. because it's... Otherwise, you're there's gonna, a, there's you're a gonna six, get six carp- six in between the <laughs> fifth and sixth letter of you're her gonna, last you're name. You're gonna get carpal tunnel trying to type her name out. So <laughs> none of we'll just all call her MM. And uh, anyway, so she had to deal with that down there in the um, in the Blaze office. And so we're hoping that we can get through to her. And um, <laughs> first, we're gonna see if we can prank her, and then we will see if we can get through to her. Should we just do it now? Tell, we yeah, let's now? Why don't you call her now and see if we can get her to tell the story because. It is a testament to union, liberal uh, government, excuse me, liberal city efficiency. Uh, Do we I, know who I, owns? All right. I, I I'm just going to go with this. Let's see. I don't know who owns the building, and I don't think we should say, because then that well, just creates more work. Because then I got to go. Remember when we had Sharice LeClaire on? What's her name? Sharice McClaire. Sharice McClaire on to, to talk to Rivette. Now Sharice is going to call. We're going to bring Sharice back to Sharice talk about is the broken leg. Sharice going to call Madeline. Uh, All right, here we, we go. Okay, sorry. Here we go. <clears throat> well, it says it's dialing. I don't hear any ringing. I don't hear it. There oh, we, we go. go. Shh, shh. 
now. May I please speak with Madeline Morgenstern? Hello? <laughs> May I please speak to Madeline Morgenstern? I think she hung up. <laughs> Try again. Try again. She's, she's not even about to entertain anybody <laughs> calling her with that voice, apparently. Try again. Okay, here we go. Oh, her cell phone has bad reception in that building. Oh, try that. Try her desk line. I don't know that number. Do you know it? Um, I, I don't know if I know it. Let's uh, try her cell phone one more time. Try again. <laughs> okay. Here we go. But she, they would be calling the the person you're calling would be calling the the office number. Hello. Hi, may I please speak with Madeline Morgenstern? Hello? <laughs> this is urgent. God, this is so dumb. <laughs> Did she hang up, up again? again? Well, it's at least the call has been disconnected. I don't know. Try the office don't number. Don't you don't you have the office number there? I don't. Oh, come on. I well, honestly was, don't. Well, this I don't was even poorly, understand. This was poorly planned. <laughs> Let's see here. See if I've um, I mean, who else could we prank, really? But I want her to tell this story about the lights. Well, I mean, you can't ask her for her number because this is, honestly, who gave us a show? <laughs> so <it's, laughs> pathetic. Right, let see if I can find Madeline here. Can you find it? It's it's Wait, a 212. Oh. Right. Uh, I just, on. I don't understand us. Um, oh, crap. Oh, here we go. I found, oh, that's a mobile number. I was, you, you called him a 212. No, 212 is not a mobile number. But the one I have on here is, but it's the, the office number is a 212 number, not a 202 number. Because it's, yeah, DC, it's 212. DC, DC is 202, but the office number there is 212. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got one. Let's try this. I'll let you talk, okay? Okay. See if I can get this added in here. <clears throat> so they have a 212 number in in D.C. Yeah. That's weird. I think it's linked to the New York office. Yeah. Our listeners are probably riveted. Yeah, I'm sure they are. <laughs> okay, no, it's, it's dialing, it says. <clears throat> Come on, it says it's it says it's dialing. You hear any ringing? No. God, we should have planned this a little better than this. It's not doing anything. Do you see the number that's on there? No, I don't even see it. How about we come back to this plan? I'm okay. gonna text some people and try to get the number. Here, I'll, I'm gonna slack you the number that I have. Uh, so that's what I have. All right, I'll hang that up. So, um, so while we wait to see if we can get a get a hold of Valen, because it is a fun. I mean, the way she told it, at least with the swear words, it was extremely funny. I can't get it to. I can't get the phone to stop. I can't get it to disconnect. She's probably listening to all of this. Uh, no. Uh, here we go. Let's. No, that's not the disconnect. Can you disconnect? You dialed. Did I dial it or you? Di I dialed it. I'm okay, I'm dialing it again. Be quiet. Hmm. 
please work, please work, please work, please work. Oh, I know who this is. Hi, this is Sharice McClare. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. God. <laughs> I'm looking for Madeline Morgenstern. Hi, hello, I gentlemen. Hear, I hear there's a light that's broken in your office and it needs fixing. I actually thought that this was my brother's for the briefest moment, and uh, no, I know. Hello. The hi. bottom line is, hi, we're recording right now. Is that okay? Boys. What, Chris? What are you babbling about? I said, hi, we're recording. <laughs> is that okay? Don't ask if it's okay. <laughs> Sorry. He's, Never hi. mind. Never <laughs> mind, Madeline. Into this. There's no choice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Hello. Hi. What's happening? Uh, I'm dealing with a slow computer right now, actually. Oh, so we're de- I'm dealing with a slow co-host, so we got something in common. <laughs> <laughs> the real reason we called, we were going to try to prank you, but it just was not happening because nothing was working properly. But we needed to know about the light. We think the light story is hilarious, and we wanted <laughs> you to explain how many months you went without a hallway light. And in, that it's a testament. And it's a testament to union work in Washington D.C. So, like, I don't even know where to start with this. I, I guess I start with when the light went out. Um, <laughs> I, like one of like we I mean we've got like this long hallway and there are it's like fourteen different cans um, that have these light these like recessed lights in them and uh, it just like like one of them went out but like it wasn't that big a deal because you know there are like fourteen other you know there's a whole bunch of them and so like uh, what find one one went out um, it's actually like that old Jewish joke you know how do you change a light bulb and it's like ah don't bother I'll just sit in the dark uh, for your Jewish grandmothers. <laughs> Um, so that's actually, I, I turned into my Jewish grandmother because I at first didn't really care. I was like, well, there are plenty of other lights. Um, and then like a couple of other ones like burned out and it was getting, you know, okay, I'm definitely noticing like it's a little bit darker, but you know, we have a small office and, uh, you know, it's just me and, you know, sometimes like, you know, maybe two or three other people at different times. So it's fine. Um, and then at, at some point I think I walked in and was like, okay, half the lights are out. And even for me, this is getting just a little bit ghetto. Right. Um, and as you know, I'm pretty much straight up ghetto. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, Well, and considering you live, you work in an office with John Street and Fred Lucas, you don't need dark hallways. It just makes it extra creepy. I mean, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't need that from, from them uh, or from myself, really. So like, I looked back at my email, and I think precisely one month ago was when I emailed our landlord in the building and was like, Hey, we've got a we we've got some lights that are out. You know, what can you do? Because they handle everything. Like we we are not responsible for anything. Like it's all on them for providing this for dealing with for their our liaison with maintenance. And then I guess they have to order lights, which I didn't actually know um, until that was the first time I was visited by maintenance. So they don't have, they don't have light you know, bulbs they, in stock. No, they don't have. Oh, they don't, no, they don't have lights in stock. Like they had to they had to be ordered. So. You know, our landlord comes over. She says, "Okay, like you know, we we, I'll just give them a call and they'll just come up and, and do that." So like the first thing happens, um, you know, that's probably. I mean, it took several days for them to, for me to get an answer, and then you know, following up, and like I think Glenn Beck came and visited uh, at one point, and it was like in the dark, and I was like, "Oh, this is in the dark." <laughs> it, it, it was it was actually after he visited that I realized I really needed to do something about this because it just my my attempt at disguising by just throwing all the doors and windows open so that all the, like, the natural light was coming in was really not uh, working. <laughs> right. um, and it was like time to, time to kick this into high gear. <clears throat> um, so let me actually, I can make this interactive and I can actually just look at my email right now and I can be a little bit more. <laughs> I just love this story. It is the best, it is the best 
worst drama of the it year. Was an ongoing, it was an ongoing saga in our Slack conversations for weeks. It was fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So the first, the first thing I, I'm looking at this email chain, it's literally 16. It's a 16 <laughs> message long email chain. And this is not even the only one. Mm. Um, like one of these was to, oh my God, hang on. Well, in fairness, you did surprise me, and That's I was right. not prepared, no, so I'm actually <laughs> I'm chance, not sorry for the dead air, actually. Any, any, ch- any chance that the person you were working with at the building was named Sharice McClare? <laughs> uh, that I'm not going to okay. get into. Okay, yeah, light bulbs burned out. September 28th. On my birthday. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. It says, hello, good morning. About four, oh, okay, just about four of the light bulbs in our suite are burned out. Is this a request we can make? Uh, to you, and then she says, "Yes, we'll submit an online reform." They're usually, oh, I like this. They're usually pretty good about coming the same day. Oh, if only. <laughs> um, fast forward to, let's see. I guess I let it drop for quite a bit. So um, really, what you're saying is you dropped the ball on the light bulb yeah. fix. I did. Well, yeah, because they said you, it would be the same day. I guess I didn't hear hear anything about it. I guess a week and a half later. I said, you know, what's going on here? And then, I, and then they responded. So this is getting to October 6th. Uh, there will be someone up to your suite today to take care of the bulbs. Apologize it took so long. Apparently there have been some communication problems. Again, oh, if only. Um, <laughs> all right. Later that day, maintenance just came by. This is an email from me. They, they don't provide the type of new bulb we need for the suite hallway. They're apparently, oh, I got, I got, they're apparently specialty lights. I put those in quotes. That was my fancy email. They're apparently specialty lights and have to be purchased by the tenant. Oh, I like this. I have one of the bulbs unscrewed here uh, for someone to make a note of. So also in all of this, I had just this, I mean, it's, it's a type of bulb I'd never seen before. It's, it's got like four like long tubey things. Oh, yeah. Um, I just had it like sitting out there um, and getting you know, like, you know, I mean, give me a ladder or something. I mean, well, probably don't give me a ladder. Um, I'm not allowed to have one, clearly, because it's union. Um right. And uh, this just went on and on. Okay, Madeline, uh, Madeline, thank you for contacting me. Uh, Can you send me the name of the information? Uh, Yes, I had all of that. I mean, a 16-message chain chain that carried into a week and a half. Um, Something, something, keeping you in the loop. Maintenance ended up coming by, I think, a total of four times. Um, You know, these big guys with these big ladders, and they climb on up there, and they're saying, you know, oh, well, we don't carry these. And then, oh, and, and and then they ordered them. They did the order. I said, these are the wrong size. And I said, literally, like, they can't be the wrong size. Like, this is, it, it's, it's light bulbs. I mean, clearly they can be the wrong size, but come on, but come on. They were here a total of four times. One of the times I wasn't even here, and it was like, you know, I was explaining to my light bulb deputy, essentially. Um, at the end of the day, a full month later, we got everything. Unbelievable together and that's i mean that's i mean that's a full month since i since i started complaining about it i mean before then the lights had been out for probably at least <laughs> for eons apparently because i just kind of didn't care uh and just let it go and then it was only yeah it was after glenn came i was like eh, it's time to actually maybe be proactive on this so are you really um, not are you really not permitted i mean we'd say it's a union is it real are you really not permitted to do your own light bulbs i don't like i don't think so Gosh. there was a thing that we couldn't paint the walls because they have to paint the walls. Like there's, Jeez. when I, I mean, this this building is, I mean, it's known as I think being one of the like most rule enhanced union buildings. Oh, is it? Um, are you in the? I don't want to say where you are. I think I know yeah, where you are. So You're we, over on New Jersey. Uh, nearby. Near New Jersey. Yeah, I know where you are. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. I know exactly what building you're talking about. I parked, I parked essentially across the street from there when I worked at the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yep. that's yeah. I know where you are. Yep. Ugh, it's the worst. Uh, well, um, yeah, and then I'm just because um, now that I've searched light bulbs or all of my emails are here. This is and again that was was one sixteen long chain, and then there was there were several others that were multi multiple Jeez. ones. But when it was all finally done, uh, I earned from our landlord a thank goodness with about five exclamation points. Um, <laughs> that was her her relief. Mine was uh, slightly more direct and. <laughs> something i'm not gonna repeat at the moment <laughs> <laughs> but it was about well, but it was about time well we're glad we're glad well, you survived that's our thing i'm just sorry we weren't able to prank you but i'm glad you shared the story of how yes. awful this was and how horrible this saga is and now everyone knows what goes on behind the blaze behind the scenes that's the real yeah, that's we're the sitting real in the dark <laughs> sitting in the dark which, and which have some people go well it makes sense apparently. yeah, yeah. And you couldn't yeah. have you can't no, have was, uh, you can't have open open flames there, so you couldn't even you know you couldn't even no pull, you I couldn't was, even it was, pull it was literally you know and it just and at first like and I'm like all right like you know one one's out you know right. like fine two are out you know three or four and like it just it, you would just like look down and there was just it was just dark and I'm thinking okay it's you know it's time and then <laughs> you know if only I it was kicking off yep. you know right. three or four weeks saga of. Were they coming in today? Nope, the bulbs are brown. You know, right. and then I've got these these this loose bulbs, you know, <laughs> sitting in roller. Yeah, it was it was when I it was when I had this like the loose bulb just like sitting there. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna knock this over and break it. Like, right. what the heck is going on? Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, it just it took it was one of those things that took longer than you could possibly imagine to get these to get this fixed. And um, you know, I think as I as I joked on Slack, like I was literally living out the joke <laughs> verbatim. How many people does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> The answer is a lot. A Apparently a parade of people. That's right. The answer is a parade of union folk. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, well, 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 listen, thank you. thank you for letting us harass you. Hey, and by the way. You're welcome. I'm sorry for uh, whatever a... I said in the beginning when I was like, oh, freaking hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's the magic of pre-recording. <laughs> so, by the way, I saw on Belly. Have you ever read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? Are dead. I have not actually. Okay, it's an old. It's a play based off two characters from yeah. from, uh, from anyway from Hamlet. Yeah. No. Yeah. Mick, I do know what it is. Yeah. Not for... Anyway, so yeah. um, I told I told Billy we all call you MM because none of us can spell your name because it's got numbers and a Q somewhere in there, and so <laughs> we all just call you MM. It rhymes with it rhymes with Gildenstern. That's right. So I I told Billy I since the first day we met I and I've never told this to anybody. <laughs> Every time I see your name, I think Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and it's which is longer than MM. But anyway, <laughs> well, I will I will take that. Okay. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for I'll being think, patient. I'll take that over, over the, probably a couple of alternatives that maybe Billy has in mind. Oh, I I've heard <laughs> Billy's alternatives. Let me know. Let me tell oh, you, please. <laughs> I have not a mean bone in my body. Yeah, You're all right. exactly <laughs> perfect. All right. All right. Thank well, you. Goodbye. Alrighty. All right. Bye. Thank you guys. Bye bye. I think she's okay. Dead. All right, good. Now we can say horrible things about her. So, okay. Let's talk about the hymen. <laughs> no, I did not. That came out wrong. Let's talk. Wow. Let's talk about the hymen story. <laughs> well, you went in a completely different direction than I thought you were going to go. Um, well, Okey you know, I just think, uh-huh. I'm actually completely sullied from doing interviews about this story <laughs> on i did a radio hit today about this and oh, so it's did? just like popping out of uh, my mouth now what was that uh, which which show was that it I was the sam sorbo show i talked oh, about right, it on the right. sam sorbo show 
forgot you're friends with Kevin's wife. So, um, and look, okay, so this story, we'll just dive right yeah, into, let's get it into it. Let's get into it. Let's explain what's going on here because it is, it's sweet it, but disturbing. <laughs> sweet but disturbing. Don't That's, you think it's, it's red rock? Yes like, or no? I, I don't know. I don't know what to compare it to. But the bottom line, the, the details are this. A woman got married earlier this month. Her father is a pastor. She had made a commitment when she was younger, years ago, not to have sex until marriage. So at right. her wedding, at the reception, she presented her father with a framed certificate of purity. Yes. In that certificate which of purity... A, which is a sweet move to do. She'd made a promise to stay a virgin, right? Yes. Right. Um, she had made a... Pro yeah. So, I mean, yeah. No, okay. Sweet, sweet move, whatever. Some people said, why is she doing it at the wedding? She should have done it privately. But whatever. She chose to do it at the reception. But in that document, it apparently says that her hymen is intact, that a doctor has, um, you know, in investigated and ensured that she really is a virgin. And so it verifies with a doctor's note, basically, that she has um, not had sex before marriage. So that's the part that people find a little bit creepy, that the hymen was brought into this and the doctor was brought into it instead of just, you know, going by her word. Right. And it's like, you know, this it's like getting the it's like. You go on the honor roll, you get a certificate. Right. It, that's what she was like giving her father. You know, it was like this <laughs> right. certificate. So the debate, a lot of people are totally disgusted by it, and then other people are praising her for it. So what do you think, Phil? I think, I think I cannot imagine framing, hanging something in my office that is framed and has the word hymen in it. <laughs> Not happening. <laughs> That'll that will never happen. Now the one thing. I, now let me let me let me say, I I am one hundred percent on board with the gesture. I think it is a sweet thing for her to do. I think it's a great thing. I praise any woman who saves herself, any any person, not just woman, any person who saves themselves for marriage. My wife and I did. That was that was a decision we'd made. I, now, my wife also wasn't about to give her her father, uh, my father-in-law, a framed certificate that said <laughs> something about the hymen in it. But, okay, but... I love the I I love the sentiment behind it. I thought it was I thought uh, I was very impressed with the young lady and with the young man too. And if you look at look go to the go to the story and read the read the story because there's I mean what a beautiful couple. You and I were talking about that. I mean what a yeah, they're very good looking couple. Good, good so looking it's not couple. Like, it was probably difficult for them to wait. Let's put it that way. Right. I mean I mean society would tell us that it was was difficult for them to wait, especially looking at them because you think what well, they're just so beautiful. I mean. You know, surely the beautiful people are, you know, <laughs> doing this all the time. And it's it wasn't, you know, wasn't somebody who was hard up for, you know, getting some action. And, you know, I think really, I, I think for me, I'm sort of like, okay, I, I praise the fact that you did this. And, yep. and look, she's ignited a huge conversation about this. And I think that's sort of the best part of the story is that people are having that debate they're having a discussion. People are talking about why she would have wanted to wait. I, I think the certificate ex itself, there are a couple of things that I wouldn't have done the way that she did it. Um, but that's okay. It's not my life. Is it? Is it bizarre and creepy? I think people could make that argument, and it wouldn't be out of bounds to make that argument. In fact, I think a lot of people who I was seeing comments on her Instagram page, people who were saying, look, I believe in, I believe in abstinence. I believe in waiting, but this is just too damn creepy. So... You know, look, I, yeah. I get it. I get I see both sides of it, but we should have more young people making right. that commitment. Yes. And 
my assumption is she knew this would get attention. On her wedding website, there is a place where you can actually download a similar certificate. Um, not a certificate, rather, but but the uh, contract commitment. you would sign before yeah. that certificate. Yeah. I'm saving, saying you're going to save yourself. So, look, more power to her for starting a conversation. Yeah, I, I thought it was powerful. I thought it was. I thought it was. <laughs> it's just the. It's the whole hymen thing and going to the doctor and have the doctor say it. I mean, yeah, it's anyway, a little awkward. That that's it is awkward. It is awkward, but it's not. It's not. I hesitate to use the word creepy talking about it because I, I, I creepy has to have some. There has to be a little bit more weirdness to it. <laughs> there can be, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting, um, I'm getting a little uncomfortable talking about it. <laughs> right. So clearly, then you feel like it might be creepy. Well, I so yeah, well. I anyway, mean, you know, I don't know, again, we should have more people. It's sad that we're at a place in society, and I said this earlier on, on Sam's show, where when somebody says they're waiting, regardless of the hymen or the certificate or any of that, when someone says right. they're waiting, it becomes controversial simply because they said they were waiting. That's sad because in 1950, it would have been the polar opposite. It would have been if you were going around talking about having sex with everybody, right. that you would be the one, the weird one who was the odd man out. Right. We, we just have this bizarre shift now yeah. that is unfortunate i'm curious what was sam's take on it when you talked to her she she agreed she felt like it seemed like she sort of felt like yeah you know that that might have been a little bit odd that part of it but that the conversation itself it was good that yeah. it was sparked right and it was again weird does not equal creepy do i think it was weird yeah do i think it's creepy no uh i i just don't want to i don't like talking about girl parts very much. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of girl parts. Don't get me wrong. I just don't enjoy talking about them. You know. Now, I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know if the word, if the word itself, Hyman was in that document. I can't remember. But the concept of it was, just to clarify, the, the concept of it being intact was. Because that's what the document No, claimed. it says, like, this is the document. The document says that it has the word Hyman in it. Well, and and I'm it it does, but just in the... It was hard to actually read the document, right? So we're going based on what every outlet is is reporting and what and what we reported, which is what right. I, it seems like they haven't refuted that it said the word in it. So I'm just hedging a little bit just in case. But either way, the concept of the hymen being intact was what the document was getting at. And yes, the text that is circulating of what was on the document does say that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you're laughing. It's the, uh, yeah. I mean, my thing is, I think I'm my guess, and I don't know this father's relationship with his daughter, right? But my guess is that he would have trusted her if she said, I'm a virgin. This is to certify that I'm a virgin and could have loved it at that, that she didn't have to have, you know, a signed note from a doctor. But well, I mean, if you trust your daughter, right? Right. Um, you know, if you trust your daughter, it could just be the word that counts, right? Right. I mean, I do think so. Just to clarify the hymen piece of this, um, it's, that's what she she did use that word. She did she did use that in Instagram. She said, "Dancing with my first love." She did a picture of her dancing with her father. I was able to present a certificate of purity to him, signed by my doctor, that my hymen was still intact. So that was the description she had given um, of that. So we can assume that the document at least alluded to that. Yeah. All right. I'm. I think we're done here. Are we? <laughs> no, I don't care. <laughs> Just with been click, I've been clicking on these different stories that are connected to this story, and I'm like, that's probably far enough. <laughs> Boy, all right, <laughs> moving on to a riveting topic that is totally unrelated. <laughs> what are we, uh, we going to go to? 
Do you want to break or do you want to just keep going? I want to just keep. Forward. I want to power trudge forward. Through. Let's trudge forward. <laughs> so wait, wait, this, wait, wait, wait. We can't. Revet will be. Revet will be extremely disappointed if we don't do this. Just a second. There you go. I wonder Next what story. Revet's up to right now. I feel like organizing something, cleaning a toilet. I don't know. Like I'm picturing something involving. She's, Probably just sitting, sitting, sitting around yelling at her daughter and being ill. That's probably what she's doing. <laughs> being ill. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, she announced her pregnancy on this show. Uh, uh, worldwide exclusive. Uh, I don't think anybody needed that. Anybody who spent <laughs> any time with her did not need that announcement. We knew there was something going on she was, based on her demeanor. She was reading something. She was. We were talking about politics. I don't think betraying anything. I know I'm not betraying anything. <laughs> she said, "So I'm so happy when the campaign's going to be over. And I she said, I hate politics. Well, she said, correct. I hate reading about politics. And I called her a baby. I said, oh, you're such a baby. She said, well, I am about one percent. I am about 10% baby. So, yeah. <laughs> like one one tenth of my body is baby. <laughs> She's a looney tune. I love yeah, it. Um, all right. Let, let's go into this. Because I think this is, I actually think this is fascinating. And this is a study that LifeWay Research did. And okay. it was a poll that they did, survey. Asking pastors oh, yeah. a bunch of questions about Islam, right? Uh, and they basically gave them a bunch of descriptors and said, "Do you think which of these following characteristics would you use to describe Islam?" And I mean, we have some pretty uh, hefty stuff here. Dangerous. There's one of these is dangerous, and 52% of Protestant pastors said that they believe Islam is dangerous. That's up from 44% in 2010. Now, did they did they have a qualifier on what they mean by dangerous? Like Islam is dangerous because there will be bombings or Islam is dangerous to uh, people's salvation, people's eternal, you know, where they're going to go when they die. And what's the danger? What does dangerous mean in that context? So did they lay it that, out? That may be something when you when you read through all the different descriptive characteristics right. they give, there's a lot of other ones that kind of would, I guess, distinguish dangerous as more of just the institution itself. Is it dangerous in any way? It's a very general. I think for that one, it's pretty general. So let's get yeah. more specific. Promotes violence. There's one that says, is, does Islam promote violence? Forty nine percent said yes. Yep. Forty two percent said uh, the same in 2010. So you have an increase there. Right. Spiritually evil. That's another. 46% said, yeah, that yeah. it is. 39% said the same in 2010. So you have increases in all these areas. Right. But really interesting, promotes charity, which is a, a positive one. Yeah. 50% say promotes charity. And right. that's up from 33%. Well, how, else, how else is care going to be taken care of, right? Your buddy's over so, at care. Well, I mean relevant whether it's relevant today uh and i think that one is not a positive or a negative being relevant has nothing to do with how well, and positive wrong well, it's relevant today because look at the news stories right I mean, right that's, and it's, so that's 53 yeah. percent today versus 28 percent in 2010 um and then spiritually good tolerant open these are some of the other ones i thought this one was interesting similar to christianity mm-hmm um, 17% said yes. 17% of pastors think that Islam is similar to Christianity. 9% said the same in 2010. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 
it's an interesting study. The, the flip side of it is that a lot of negative indicators increasing, but some of the positive ones were increasing as well, like yeah. the cha- like charity and things like that. Did it, uh, did it seem strange to you? It's a, the the question. The top question says fundamentally different from Christianity. Eighty three percent of Protestant pastors said Islam is fundamentally different from Christianity. What I I don't understand the other seventeen percent. Right. Well, that that those are the same people who said it's similar to Christianity. Uh, I think. They how is it, are probably how is it, how, mainline preachers. How can you? But how could you not say it's fun? I mean, even if you're not, even uh, simply if looking you're very at the theology, and you're a universalist. What does it matter? Right, really? but that doesn't make you a Protestant pastor. I mean, if you're well, a universalist, that's one thing. But if you're a liberal, I don't know, Chris. But I'm I'm telling you, but somebody like uh, uh who's Sojourners, uh, Wallace. Wallace. So, I I would say that Wallace, whether or not he agrees with you know, my theology as a conservative Christian or his theology, you know, and doesn't agree with his, I don't agree with his liberal theology. I think he would still say, I, I'm assuming he would say, still say there's a fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity because one's based on Jesus and one isn't. I mean, there's, that's fundamentally well, but Jesus different. Jesus is their second biggest prophet, right? So if you're somebody right, but who we doesn't don't really... See, but we don't even see Jesus as a prophet. We see Jesus as, you know, God. Right, but they still see Jesus as immensely important to their theology. So my here's my rationale for this. Some of these pastors, I mean, look, you've got pastors blessing an abortion clinic, okay? When you have yeah, that happening, that's true. these are people who are extremely... Look, PCUSA, which is an embattled denomination that's losing property and losing members and has endorsed, you know, gay marriage and all that, PCUSA did a study, I think it was 2010, of their own pastors. And I, I mean, I'm going to go with reportedly, because I can't remember all the details, but it was like 30% of the pastors in PCUSA were saying they weren't sure if they believed Jesus was the Son of God. Yeah. Um, and the tr- So when you have a good chunk of pastors saying that in a denomination, you have to assume at some point you're going to have people who are saying these sorts of things. But isn't, wouldn't it also be, I mean, again, you're going to have some of that, there's going to be some overlap there, I agree. At the same time, if you are, uh, if you're one of these PCUSA Peeps who who are em, embracing you know abortion, Planned Parenthood, or embracing gay marriage and that sort of thing, wouldn't you also say if you believe that Christianity can embrace those things, wouldn't you also then say that your belief system is fundamentally different from Islam? Yeah, Islam no, doesn't I mean, ab- I, I embrace do those think... things. Is it? A, I think it's a, it's less of a misunderstanding of Christianity and more of a misunderstanding of Islam. Yeah, and I would, I mean, I would hope that a Muslim or a Christian or a Jewish person or a you know Hindu would be able to say that their religion is different from the others because the fact is right. it is. And yeah. I think, look, there are there similarities between every faith or most faiths. Yeah, in yeah. some cases there are, but I don't see how you could walk away saying that Christianity and Islam are similar. But I guess right. if you don't know a lot about the faith, either faith, and you know that they're both, you know, they both descend from Abraham, they both involve Jesus to some degree, obviously Christianity very differently than Islam, then you could walk away very ignorantly saying that. Right. Hmm. Fascinating. It's kind of So, I mean, I don't know, but it's an interesting look at what pastors think. Now, the public, and we didn't include this in our story, is much more favorable of Islam than pastors are, which is... I guess to be expected, sort of. Right. So about half the population said that Islam and Christianity are fundamentally different, which you know doesn't surprise me because the population doesn't largely understand Christianity and or Islam. So that's to be expected. 
and or Christopher Field. That's true. They don't understand. Pollock does not understand. You're an enigma. <laughs> All right, let, should we take a break and come back with one of our yeah, wonderful let's, interviews? Let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll do one of the. I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let you spin the, when we come back. I'll let you spin the wheel and we'll see which interview we, we want to do first. All right, we'll be right back. Okay. Oh wait a second. <laughs> I I I have it on the wrong thing here. Uh, that's that's my that's that failed trombone is for me. Just a second. <laughs> we'll be out in just a second and here we go. Back to the church boys. All right, Billy. I got my big wheel here. You can see it behind me here on Skype. I'm going to spin the wheel and click. Oh, it landed on. Hutchinson, Hutchinson, Hutchinson. How do I? Hutchinson. Hutchinson. Is there Robert an N? There, is there an N in there? There is an N in there. Hutchinson. Yeah. The Hutchinson interview. So why don't you uh, lay out for the peeps what we're what the uh, Hutchinson interview is all about and what they're about to hear. <sighs> anyway, yawning and here's staring. Here's what we're gonna hear. I was go. just taking a yawn break because I heard you talking. Um, Robert Hutchinson. He's an author, a writer. He's got a new book out, Searching for Jesus. A new book that's coming out. And uh, Searching for Jesus is basically a project that sort of takes you through a lot of the archaeological developments that have come over the last few years. And his central argument is that the Jesus that we read about in the Bible can be verified by a lot of the things that archaeologists and that others have been finding over the past few years. Um, a stone house that was found in Nazareth uh, back in 2009. And there's a whole list of things. A scholar in the UK who believes that the Gospel of Mark was written um, very soon after Jesus' death and not 40 years later, like some believe it was. And he just sort of goes through all these arguments. And, and basically, his takeaway, and I won't ruin any more of it for you, is, though, is that you, know, you can really have reliability in the Bible based on what we know mm -hmm. outside of it about who Jesus is. So with no further ado, adieu. I will bring you. Adieu. 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 I will bring you my interview adieu. Adieu. with Robert adieu. 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 With who? Robert. Adieu. 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 My gosh, this is... We're, we've hit a new low. Okay. I'm out of coffee. Okay, let's roll it. Here we go. It's a problem. It's Billy Hollowell here, and I have author Robert Hutchinson on the phone. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. So I'm, I'm really excited because you have a book that is releasing in just a couple of days here, and it's called Searching for Jesus. Um, and and the extended title, Searching for Jesus, New Discoveries in the Quest for Jesus of Nazareth and How They Confirm the Gospel Accounts. And, you know, I think this is one of those projects that I'm always fascinated by because personally, I'm a Christian and, and I'm somebody who covers a lot of these different things that are going on in, in sort of archaeology and what experts are saying. And you, more than anybody writing this book, know the debates and the... Uh, claims that have gone on for years among many experts saying that Jesus is not who we think he is, that he's not who the Bible uh, portrays him to be. So I think my, my first question for you is, why do you think so many people, in your view, have gotten Jesus wrong over the years? <laughs> Boy, that's a very, that's a very complicated <laughs> question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was like raised with all this stuff. I, I went to a very, I was educated by the Jesuits. I went to a very uh, a liberal Catholic university. So I sort of accepted all of the 
uh, presuppositions of liberal biblical scholarship, you know, uh, since I was a little kid. So uh, I've been following this for years and uh, studying it in graduate school and everything. But in the, in the last few years, I started noticing that many of the fundamental assumptions that have guided the New Testament research over like 100 or 150 years were being challenged by the, by the skeptical scholars themselves. In other words, many of the of the concepts and the ideas and the assumptions that they had had, you know, a century ago were no longer held by the by the top scholars. And yet a lot of this stuff hadn't filtered down to the media. The media was still repeating ideas that basically were expressed in 1890. You know, I kind of jokingly say that that uh, scholars like Bart Ehrman represent the cutting edge of New Testament scholarship, but that's the cutting edge of New Testament scholarship in 1915, not 2015. <laughs> and uh, things have changed a lot, you know. And um, to get to the, your actual question, um, when, the, when the critical scholars first looked at the New Testament, they made some discoveries, but then at the same time they made some assumptions about those discoveries, or some hypotheses that were never actually verified, but they continued with those hypotheses for like a century. And it's only in recent years that um, scholars have, have challenged those basic hypotheses and basic assumptions. Yeah, and does that I mean, make any sense? Yeah, no, no, it does. I mean, and, and it's funny because I've been taking seminary classes, and it's and one of the things that they always say in seminary is, you know, no other field is ever judged the way that people judge. I mean, no other work is ever judged the way that people judge the Bible, and they sort of go in with these preconceived notions. A lot of these people that it's not true and it's not real, and there's no way it could be valid. Um, but but a lot of other things are not really approached that way, and it's and it's sort of. A fascinating debate, and I know people on the other side could argue the same thing. Well, you know, Christians go in with their own preconceived notions, trying to prove um, that it is true. But you know, it's just intriguing to me how Jesus is treated um, as a, an in, an individual. I mean, you had the Riza Aslan book um, about Jesus, which created a lot of controversy and, and debate when that came out. Um, I, I guess the question I have for you is how closely uh, can people trust the Bible to paint an accurate picture of Jesus? Well, that's what, that's what I'm increasingly finding, is that, and I'm, I'm not talking about Christian scholars. My book is primarily about uh, Jewish and skeptical and secular scholars who work at top universities, okay? So I'm not really writing about conservative Christians who try to defend the New Testament as, you know, accurate down to the last detail. I'm talking about how uh, skeptical secular experts have made discoveries that make them question some of these older ideas and some of these older assumptions about who Jesus was, and and so it's it's and those that questioning is actually uh, confirming the overall portrait of Jesus in the Gospels. That doesn't mean that they agree every single thing is uh, absolutely historically accurate or anything, but the overall picture of who Jesus was and what he was about and what he was trying to do as presented in the Gospels is increasingly supported by the discoveries of these skeptical s scholars and secular experts and archaeologists and so on uh, to, to an amazing degree. I mean, it's a very, very exciting field, and I'm just astonished that most pe other people don't know about it. I mean, I was, I was trying to think about the takeaways I'd want to give to you, you know, like the top things, and I can just, there's so many of them that it's hard for me to condense it into a, into a soundbite, but uh, I, we can talk about them as we go on. So. Sure. No, I think, and I think, yeah, that's the thing. I, I think people look at this because the media has sort of handled it in a certain way. And I mean, look, the media rely rely on experts, and if the experts are saying something, 
um, then they go with what those experts are saying. And I think there isn't a lot of people in the public who aren't as aware, I don't think, question it because they just, you know, you hear what you hear and you go with that information. Uh, so it's fascinating that people like you are sort of are, are looking at this. And I think, I mean, look, you, you can read, you can do research on all of this. And when you start to do that, you do see as what, what you're saying, a lot of these findings are backing up ex exactly or at least the general aura of what the Bible says. Um, I guess one of one of the big things I would have for you, and I know you, you said there are a lot of different elements, um, but what are some of the more uh, convincing or more interesting pieces or findings, rather, archaeologically um, over the last, you know, five to ten years that have convinc further convinced you that, um, you know, that, that the Bible really can be, at least in, in a sense, validated to some degree? Well, I, I think the one that... There was many, 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 you know, but the one that really blew me away was the Gabriel Revelation. The Gabriel Revelation is a first century stone tablet that was discovered around the year 2000 on the other side of the Jordan River uh, that mentions the angel Gabriel and speaks about, this is the first century now, uh, it's written in Hebrew, uh, and speaks about a, uh, a Messiah who would suffer, die, and perhaps even rise again. Uh, and th this has just been a a uh, kind of an earthquake that hasn't yet, uh, the implications of it haven't really uh, filtered down to ordinary ordinary scholars and seminaries and so on, and even, of course, into the media and certainly not into the pews. But what it basically shows is that uh, there were Jews in Jesus' time who were expecting a suffering Messiah, and this is important because it shows that this theme of a suffering Messiah wasn't just made up by the Christian community as an apologetic device after the fact to explain the scandal uh, that Jesus was crucified. Um, for literally a century, scholars have said that. It was one of the pillars for questioning the reliability of the New Testament, was that all this references to a suffering Messiah, well, the Jews weren't expecting a suffering Messiah, they were expecting a conquering hero who would come and reestablish the Davidic kingdom, and so on. And so this was obviously just made up by the Christian uh, community after Jesus' uh, shocking uh, death. But now we know that that simply isn't true, and there's been a lot of work by Jewish scholars that have investigated uh, not just the Gabriel Revelation, but also early first-century texts that shows that some Jews were expecting a suffering Messiah. And again, these are not Christian scholars that are finding this. Daniel Boyarin is a professor at UC Berkeley, which is not known as a bastion of you know Christian conservatism, <laughs> and he has argued strenuously uh, that this was the case, that there were Jews into the time of Jesus who were expecting the suffering Messiah. So that's just one of the, that's, that's the one that really blew me away the most. But there's been many, I mean, they just discovered in 2009, they discovered stone houses in Nazareth that date back to the first century, and that proves that Nazareth was settled uh, when Jesus of Nazareth was there. And this was, was one of the main arguments that the so-called mythicists had used to deny that Jesus even existed, because they said, you know, just as we know, Frank Zindler, the atheist writer, said that, uh, and publisher, he said that just as we, we know that the Wizard of Oz didn't exist because there never was a land of Oz, and in the same way we know Jesus of Nazareth never existed because there never was an historical Nazareth. And in, in 2008, You've got to be careful with this stuff, because in 2008, a guy wrote a book called the, uh, something like the, uh, the Non-Existent Town of Nazareth, or the, or the Mythical Town of Nazareth. The next year, they discovered uh, a stone house in, from first century, and I've been there, I've seen it, I walked around in the, in the excavations, and it's, it's just astonishing. And then, then just, you know, like another couple years ago, they discovered a first century stone synagogue at Magdala, 
on the Sea of Galilee, uh, where Jesus almost certainly preached. So there's been, and, and then they found Ca- uh, Caiaphas's ossuary or bone box. They've, they've discovered perhaps the bone box of James, the brother or relative or cousin of Jesus. So there's been some astonishing archaeological finds that many people don't know about that do support the overall story in the Gospels, that this is not a fictional text or something like that. These are rooted in actual historical events and real people. Yeah, I mean, Am I just, talking too fast? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's, it seems it's always remarkable to me. And you have to, I imagine you have to do this too. You sort of have to check your own beliefs at the door sometimes and just say, okay, how do I look at this and, and objectively try to understand it? And what always fascinates me about this whole entire narrative in the Gospels and the Bible as a whole is that something that happened 2,000 years ago, we're still talking about, and people like you, you know, we're having these conversations, you're writing books about this, this is still a topic um, that is nowhere near dying down in terms of the interest that people have to discuss and analyze it for all the claims of religion dying and all that, which are very overblown. Um, yeah, this is still something that we're talking about. So it's just, it's a fascinating thing to me what do you think drives the the increased interest, or at least the, the sustained interest, I guess, to be fair, in this subject of Jesus? Well, I mean, Jesus is a, is a life-changing figure. I mean, whether you believe, as Christians do, that he was the Son of God, uh, or if you just think that he was a, uh, an amazing man, I mean, he literally changed history in just three years. In this tiny, isolated backwater, you know, in Palestine, he ignited the largest, most influential, longest-lived social movement in history. Uh, You know, from a handful of followers, uh, he he started this very uh, dangerous and explosive social and religious movement uh, that changed the world. And how did he do that, and and what were his motives, and what what did he envision? Uh, continues to fascinate people, uh, whether they're Christians or not. Uh, you know, and I think what what people have been trying to do in the last few decades, or really the whole past century, is try to figure out, you know, how how did that happen? You know, and how did it work? And even on human terms, what was Jesus trying to do? What was he trying to achieve? And I think we are we're getting closer. You know, the more you study these um, kind of wild historical Jesus authors, they have many wild theories, but they also agree on many key points. And uh, we're getting closer and closer to an, uh, to, a, to an answer. I've always viewed, it sounds sort of disrespectful, and I don't mean it, that the Gospels really are the Cliff Notes version. They are, you know, kind of like, um, even if you believe, as I do, that the, by, that the Gospels are inspired, you can still view them as just a, a fair outline of, of the story, that you know, written on the fly, in a sense, and that the real story is much, much bigger, and we're trying to use archaeology and textual research and advanced scientific methods to fill in some of the details that are missing from, from the Gospel accounts. And I think, to some degree, that's why uh, all this, all these many books written about Jesus and all this stuff is, is a worthwhile endeavor. We're trying to, we want to know more. I've wanted to know more my entire life. I've been fascinated by Jesus my entire life. I moved to Israel to learn Hebrew, and it's because I, uh, because I want to know more about the story. And uh, it's hard to piece it together. You have to do a lot of work. You have, to, as you know, if you've been going to seminary, you got to study very difficult ancient languages, and, and and it's not easy. But we are able to learn a lot. Well, and that brings me, I think, to some questions about the Book of Mark, because as far as I have been told, and I know there throughout history there have been different ideas about this. Mark was the first gospel written of you know of the gospels, and 
I mean, it's it's also relatively short, which which is sort of interesting. But I think the the main question surrounding the book is when was it written? And I think this goes for all of the Gospels and the Bible as a whole. You know, how distant out from Jesus's life and death were these books written? And I know that um, there's a scholar, I believe, who who's addressed this issue, and I think you also address it. Um, in the book of of when the book was written, what I guess the general question. Then we could talk specifically about Mark. What do we know in terms of when these books were written, and how much can we trust them based on that timeline? <laughs> Another yeah, loaded right, question right. for you. <laughs> Good questions. Um, well, it's true. I mean, most scholars for at least a century have believed that the Gospels were written probably after AD seventy. Okay, because there are a few uh, vague references in the text. Uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem, okay? And so a lot of scholars, skeptical scholars, believe that these were prophecies after the fact, meaning that that, uh, that the evangelists put prophecies in Jesus' mouth about the stones of the temple falling down, and it was only because that occurred only afterwards. But there's always been questions in my own mind and the minds of many scholars about, you know, whether that could possibly be true, because many of the, the biggest events that occurred at that time are nowhere mentioned in the Gospels as, as past actions. You know, the, uh, the, the, the uh, New Testament or the Book of Acts basically ends with Paul under house arrest uh, uh, in Rome. It doesn't mention the war of the Jewish people against Rome in which the temple, the entire city was destroyed. I mean, up to Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, says a million people were wiped out in this war, okay? The Romans were crucified in 500 people a day during this during this war. It was the biggest disaster to befall the Jewish people, and yet none of that is discussed in the Gospels. And there have been people over the years who've, who've said that the idea that the Gospels were written 40 years, beginning with Mark, 40 years after the crucifixion, just isn't plausible uh, from, from a common-sense point of view. And now some secular writers, secular skeptics, like in the UK, there's a young, uh, brilliant New Testament scholar named James Crossley, the University of Sheffield, who's written a book that overtly questions uh, and challenges the notion that Mark was written in uh, after AD 70. And he believes it could have been written within five to ten years uh, after the crucifixion. In other words, in, by the late 30s. Wow. And that would push things much, much closer to the to the time. But even if you don't believe that, it's still absurd to think that these aren't based on eyewitness accounts because the people would still, even if Mark wrote in AD 70, the people, if you were, they were 20, they'd still be in their 60s. And ask any World War II veteran if they remember what happened, you know, in Pearl Harbor or something, if they were there. They're, they're quite capable of remembering what happened, well, the more, uh, even the more, if it was written late. The more memorable or traumatic, you know, good or bad an event is, the more likely you are to remember the details of it. I think anybody who, and obviously, I mean, there's no comparison here, but people who lived through something like 9-11, no matter whether they were in New York City or in Washington or outside, you sort of remember what went on that day. And I would you imagine... You yes. Right, right. <laughs> and you remember, I mean, I remember every detail, and I was I was young, I was a senior in high school at the time, I, but I remember every single detail of that day. So I think, you know, to assume that people would not remember something like you know, events surrounding Jesus is sort of silly. I think you obviously would. If what the Bible yeah. says is true, you would probably remember those details pretty well. 
Um, and that's another, that's another thing that is being uh, questioned today that people don't realize. The, the early 20th century skeptical New Testament scholars developed this notion of an oral transmission of tradition. The idea that the sayings and deeds of Jesus were remembered orally and passed on from friend to friend, and they grew in the telling. And they based this whole theory, which was never, ever verified or proven, on sort of the oral transmission of German folk tales over centuries, like the Brothers Grimm. They could see how the Brothers, these German folk tales over centuries did evolve and change. But that has nothing to do with the actual circumstances of the New Testament. And increasingly scholars, many non-Christian, again, like a Jewish scholar like David Flusser, who was an Israeli at the Hebrew University, they find evidence that obviously the Gospels have written sources. Uh, because the sayings of Jesus quoted in Matthew and Luke are often quoted verbatim. And so there's strong evidence that there was a written saying source at the very least. And many, many people now say that it's very likely that there were people taking notes when Jesus was speaking. As the, as the educated people, uh, the, the New Testament mentions, mentions writing implements. There were people taking notes when Jesus was living in Galilee and preaching, and his deeds were written down and that the gospel, the evangelists use written sources uh, when composing their uh, their accounts of Jesus' life. It's fa- it's fascinating. I mean, it it really it really is. And I think a lot of this again is it, you have people who don't believe it, and that's fine. You know, who don't want to believe it, and so it's very it's very easy for them to come up with reasons why it wouldn't it wouldn't be true. Just as easy as it is, I think you know they would say for believers to try to do the same thing. But it does seem like the evidence itself. Is falling more on side, you know, on the side of at least corroborating some of the general themes and and the character of Jesus that are recounted in the Bible. So that's what's fascinating to me. Now, if you could, and again, this I know this is difficult, but if you could sort of have one or two things that you would want readers to leave searching for Jesus, feeling or thinking, what would those things be? <laughs> um, that that they shouldn't believe everything they they hear in the media. That most of what they hear in the media today is literally a century old. I mean, Bart Ehrman is a famous scholar. He's written many books debunking the New Testament, and he says that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet, or, you know, Reza Aslan says that he was a zealot. These are century-old ideas, okay? This, this has been said for a century. The most recent research points in exactly the opposite direction, okay? And that's what I really want people to know about my book and why I want them to buy it and study it and learn about it from it is because it's an exciting new world and we're discovering things and you don't have to be a conservative Christian apologist and and believe the Bible is inerrant down to the last detail to find this very exciting that um, the recent discoveries are supporting the overall uh, portrait of Jesus in the Gospels and so that's that's the takeaway I would take I would ask people to 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 take away from this this book, that uh, things are changing in, in a big way, and there's been some huge new discoveries being made, and it's worth learning about them. How has your own uh, personal faith changed as a result of your research and your work? Um, yeah, that's, people ask me that all the time. I mean, it's uh, not. I mean, it's only deepened my faith. You know, people think that you go to seminary, you lose your faith, and it's true for for some people. I was true for Bart Ehrman, and that, but if you come, if uh, I was raised with this kind of scholarship, this is what I was taught in high school and so on. So this doesn't shock me at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. When I, uh, what I've learned from this is that Jesus was a much more uh, dangerous figure 
he he was a uh, dangerous not because he wanted to re- lead a revolution, but because he was more like a Martin Luther character. He was a religious revolutionary who was a big threat to the wealthy aristocrats in his era. And everything he did and said and taught and his example uh, uh, was a big threat. I, the, the closest thing I can think of it is if, if you can imagine the son of a, of a white slaveholder walking into a slave encampment and sitting down and eating with black slaves and so on. Just, just that act is a, a provocative a revolutionary, subversive thing to do. And Jesus did stuff like that all the time. And he, he was a threat to the livelihoods of the Jerusalem aristocracy, who, who we now know, this is again a thing of archaeology, we've now uncovered the palaces of the, of the Jewish collaborators who, who ran the temple state in Jerusalem. And they had 10,000 square foot villas with, with uh, indoor pools and floor heating and marble floors. And they lived lives of unbelievable luxury that we've now uncovered uh, through archaeology. And Jesus' actions were a threat to that entire uh, state. And uh, that's why uh, I think even secular people should study this, because uh, his, his message and his teaching and his example uh, provided a very real motive for wanting to get rid of him. And, and, and that supports the Gospel's portrayal that Jesus was arrested on trumped-up charges of sedition when he was innocent. He wasn't plotting the overthrow of Rome, as Reza Aslan says in Zealot, uh, just the opposite. But he was still a very dangerous man, and they had a strong motive to get rid of him. And the way they did was falsely accusing him of plotting against Rome. And so the Romans executed him as a, as a, a revolutionary, or as a would-be revolutionary. Well, listen, this has been great, and I want to try to convince you to come back again because there's a lot more. To, and in fact, you know, it would be fun to even um, have people submit questions. Maybe we'll have people do that, and we can have you back on the show to answer some of those questions um, in addition to what we've discussed, if you're willing. That'd be, that'd be great. <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on. All right. Thank you, Billy. Alright, so there has been some major drama happening that Billy was just lamenting while we were doing taking that break. <clears throat> and it's about the Kardashians. Uh, Billy, your boy your girl's the Kardashians. I'm uh, I, I hear that you've got some updates on what's going on there. Uh, I have no updates. Oh. I cannot stand them. I, hates the I don't understand the obsession <laughs> that Why, this country has uh, with them. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, now don't, no, don't get me wrong. Kim Kardashian is a fine looking woman. Don't get, okay. You know, she has a, an enormous caboose. That's true. Okay. But she's a beautiful woman. Uh, but, 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 but all of their fame is based on the fact that, well, for one, you know, Chris, Chris, Kardashian Jenner, and it's not even her name, was married to a uh, a, a multi million dollar, billion dollar. Some was, who was she married to? Well, she was married to OJ, one of OJ's defense attorneys. Well, she was married to somebody else too, though, right? I mean, that's where their card, the money comes. No, from. no, no. She's had no. Her money, their money came from. I mean, he was a, a well known defense attorney, and he had he had defended OJ, and in fact, 
they were good friends. Chris, Chris oh, uh, right. Kardashian was good friends with Nicole Brown, and there was a big split that's in right. their family that's at right. that that's time. Right. That's right. Which but actually a, is an interesting story about that. Yeah, but it's but the, their fame comes from not from really from the from the OJ lawyer. It comes from the fact that Kim was having sex with a guy on camera, right. and that, that well, and that video was quote leaked, and so and then well, everybody got to see her naked and. <laughs> She will not be handing her father a certificate at her next wedding. <laughs> her next wedding, that's terrible. Uh, but, but you know, but I feel, I feel, I feel bad for Lamar Odom. I mean, I mean, he listen. He wound up in his situation at the Bunny Ranch uh, on his own accord. You know, he chose to go there. He chose to do whatever it is that got him in the in the health situation, and you know, unconscious for days. Uh, he did that, right? But. He was a part of this clan of weirdos. I mean, shouldn't say weirdos. Weirdos. And well, it, there's got to be a like psychological who's in impact. This group is touched in some way. <laughs> you know, there's some. There's like everybody involved. The other one's in rehab now. I mean, and then, and of course, the. I mean, and again, I don't understand. I don't know all the circumstances surrounding it, but it seems weird to me that that Bruce Caitlin is not being held responsible. In that, you know, uh, there's the car accident where someone was killed. And Bruce Caitlin is walking on that. Stop saying Bruce Caitlin. I can't. Well, it's me, I well, cannot contain it. It's, it's like a celebrity name that you've created out no, of Bruce I, and Caitlin. Again, again, I don't know all the. And again, I don't know. I'm speaking like Obama. I don't know all the details, but it seems that they acted stupidly. I don't mean that. I mean it's just the beer summit. I I think that she, I think that I think that Bruce Caitlin was legitimately nervous about being dinged on this thing and for whatever reason walked but anyway well i don't know the details of that story all i know is that there <laughs> every man who is married into the family has had some sort oh. of issue a lot of them with addiction um yeah. or yeah. and not necessarily yeah. addiction or you drug use or whatever it seems right. allegedly right uh to be going on there so i don't Look, I'm not trying to judge these people. I just don't understand why anybody cares, why they have a reality show, why the fame yeah. continues. And I also don't understand at what point, and I really mean this, at what point do you look at your life and you say, we have so much, we have so much money, we have all these things, but yet the unhappiness continues for us Get clue, um, in all people. these important areas of our life. What, right. At what point do you sit back and say, I've taken enough of Michael Jackson's clothes, I don't need to wear them anymore, <laughs> Chris Jenner, and you put the Michael Jackson pantsuits away. At what point does that happen? Well, what, and it takes, and it takes, they are, none of them, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe that anybody in that family apparently is gifted with any sort of self-awareness at all. Why no. don't you, I mean, you continue to complain about the misery of your life for whatever reason, and yet you don't step back and take a look at what might be causing the misery in your life. And the fact is, you're doing it to yourself. By the way, I'm just having flashbacks to the conversation we had earlier this week on Slack. You really look like Charles Nelson Riley right now. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Charles Nelson Riley? He was an old gay comedian actor. He was on the, the old match game. I never. I've watched reruns of it because it is hilarious television. You know, I'm sorry that I wasn't alive when I Love Lucy. Was I wasn't in, alive know, was, either. Was however, however, if you get a chance to watch, if you get a chance, like you want to kill some time, you go to the Game Show Network and watch old episodes of Match Game. Um, uh, Charles Nelson Riley is an absolute scream. Richard Dawson. I think Richard Dawson was even better on Match Game than he was on The Family Feud. This is I like mean, when I hear what. Like it was like to live through Pearl Harbor. I don't. I wasn't there. I don't know. 
I don't understand. I should not even be making that comparison, but I don't understand <laughs> why you're telling me about a game yes. show that aired in 1943. Yes. Match 1970. Match game was just like World War II. <laughs> <laughs> who, who's who's the host of Match? Game? Is it like it's like Gene Rayburn? Gene Rayburn, and he had the he made. I think he made. You know that microphone that um that um um uh um, uh, uh Bob Bob Barker had those a long stick microphone i think gene rayburn made that famous before bob barker did anyway gene rayburn was a funny host he hosted match game this is devolving into a geriatric hour so i, I don't i know but you know some of our fans will love this and i'm, I'm, I'm an old, old people i'm, I'm an old i'm you. an i'm an old soul and so i really get into the old the old match game stuff i'm not into necessarily old tv shows though some of them but the old, some of the old game shows, especially Match Game, because it was hysterical, and all the double entendres that they would do, and the, I mean, this was, this was breakthrough television when they were doing this kind of stuff. Anyway, you're a mess. You still look like Charles Nelson Riley. Uh, you need to go back and watch it just to watch Charles Nelson. Just Riley. so I can because he was be so. I mean, I he was so outrageous and just fabulous and out there, and just I mean, just a, as Homer said, as Homer said, is he alive say, still? Uh, I think he died. He might still be alive. He's bald now, or at least when he died. I don't know if he's still alive or not. What's I think he name? died. Charles Nelson Riley, but he was as 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 as, as uh, Homer Simpson would say. I like my homosexuals flaming, and he was flaming on that show. And he was fabulous. I mean, he was fantastic. Well, he's like a, he's been like dead a for a very Lynn long time. Of. So forget when, it. When did he die? We're in the not last getting decade. him on. He died in the last decade, right? 2007. So yeah, in the last decade. All right. Sad. He, was he was hilarious. All right. Anyway, what was I going to? Oh, so anyway, so we're talking about the Jenners. Speaking of the Jenners, <clears throat> apparently, hmm, I, I was going to say this in a crass way, but I'll try not to. Did you see who the new uh, glamour woman of the year is? <laughs> I did. Bruce Caitlin. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the man of the glamour names, Bruce Caitlin, who has, by the way, still a male appendage, who from the nipples down is male, is now woman of the year for Glamour magazine. How does that make any sense? Uh, Billy, you keep up what you're doing. You're going to be eligible. <laughs> you know what, Chris? The bottom, the bottom line here is that I think what is happening, and I've said oh, this before, and you know, it's it's going to create controversy to say it, but this is not. It's not about being anti-transgender or anything right. like that. It's about the right. narrative that the media is I painting, know. and the narrative that the media are painting is one in which they are saying this is the new normal, right. and we're going to reward this, and we are going to continue to push it in people's faces, right. and we are going to continue to tout this, and right. that, I think, is the concern that people have. That is going to be the continued concern, and in fact, uh, our second interview that we're going to be getting to here addresses this very topic, which is sort of fascinating. Okay, well, you, why don't we, you know, we were going we to talk about another topic, but I, let's, let's close with the Christmas child stuff at the end. Sure, because we we were getting into drama, but let's 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 hit pause on the drama button. We'll 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 restart the drama button here uh, after the break. But tell about this interview because this was fascinating. So Albert Moeller, who is a well-known you know ba Southern Baptist, and we had him he before. He was on our we, show what yeah. two weeks ago? Yeah, a week or two ago. 
um, and really talked about his new book, We Cannot Be Silent. We had him back on the show to talk about this again because in between our interview and our second conversation with him, there was a lot of controversy. He had put out some things, or I guess some some news reports about his book came out saying that he talked about the transgender community um, in the book and that he also said, and I haven't read the book yet, that gays, you know, who family members of gays and lesbians should not go or attend their wedding, even if the, if it's their son, their daughter, their father, their mother, if they oppose gay marriage. And he said it's not the right thing to do. They shouldn't do it. They should not go even to support them. And so that's what we talked about in the interview. Really fascinating stuff that will probably upset some people and other people will agree with. Yeah. All right. You want to go ahead and play this thing then? Let's roll it. <laughs> It's Billy Hollowell here with the Church Boys, and I have Dr. Albert Moeller on the line for part two uh, of an interview. We spoke about a week or two ago and had a really great discussion, so I appreciate you coming back on the show again. Really glad to be with you. Thank you. So, you know, we're just a few days out now from uh, your book, We Cannot Be Silent, and, um, you know, a lot of headlines, even after we did our story and, and you came on the show, uh, talking about different excerpts from the book and different issues that you dealt with in the book. And I think the one that, I mean, and you probably saw it everywhere too, but the one that I saw everywhere was, you know, the comments in the book about whether or not Christians should go to gay weddings, Christians should attend gay weddings. Um, so let's, let's right. talk through that a little bit. You know, in your view, what should a Christian do if their mother, father, brother, friend is um, getting married and they're in a gay relationship. How should they respond to a request to attend? Well, that's a, a pressing question, and it's not completely new. You know, th these are questions that Christians have had to struggle with, but what is new is the issue of a same-sex wedding. And, and that gets to a very important issue that comes up, for instance, in the historic wedding ceremony of the Book of Common Prayer. And, and that's the uniqueness of a wedding ceremony. Attendance at a wedding means consent to the rightness of the wedding, to the rightness of the union. I mentioned that Book of Common Prayer language. You know, most people hear it with these words. If there be anyone present who knows any reason why these two should not be joined together in holy matrimony, let them speak now or forever hold their peace. Well, that's clearly intended in terms of history to make clear that those who are there are, are testifying by their presence to the rightness of the union. And that's the problem here. Christians cannot by presence at a same-sex wedding, imply consent and agreement with the wedding. And uh, this is going to create any number of very difficult situations, but it's not like attending actually any other event. Attending a wedding is a specific kind of affirmation and consent. Were you surprised at all? Because, I mean, there was a pretty... And obviously there are going to be elements of any book, uh, especially a book like this that's dealing with, with topics that are very heated topics. Were you surprised by the reaction? I think it was pretty viral uh, almost last week um, in how people reacted to, to the knowledge that you addressed that issue in the book. Yes, you know, the interesting thing here, Billy, is that the position that I've articulated there, just historic Christianity, it's what, it's what Christians have believed for, for two millennia. And you would have thought that I just put out a press release on the Christian Church coming to a new moral understanding. You know, it's, it's not that at all. But it does tell us how the moral revolution has changed the way Americans think in terms of moral reflexes. And so you, you've, you've clearly got millions of Americans who say, hey, even if I don't agree with the wedding, I can go. It's no big deal. And, uh, and that's just to completely misunderstand what the wedding is all about. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting debate, and and you know, look, people end up in very difficult positions if they hold a traditional view and they and they believe certain things about marriage, and they're somebody very close to them um, is then getting married. And I know a lot of activists said you know, they accused you of further dividing families, of being divisive, of creating um, you know familial issues because of this stance. How do you react to those people who would sort of critique you and say, "Look, you're causing more problems with this stance for families than you are helping." Well, you have to consider the logic of that argument because that argument has no end. Uh, if, if you are willing to uh, to compromise conviction to the point that you will affirm what you do not believe even actually is a union, then I don't believe that's showing the kind of love that uh, that unfortunately millions of people in this society uh, think uh, that uh, that is now required of us because it, it, it really isn't an act of love. To, uh, to to mislead someone into the fact that they think they're married when we profoundly believe they are not. And, uh, of course, there's a lot more here in terms of this moral revolution and the normalization of homosexuality. But it's one thing, for example, I, I suggest that Christians should maintain what the Christian Church has called table fellowship with, uh, with those who may be in uh, so-called same-sex unions or same-sex marriage. In other words, I, I, I think we should have uh, you know, hospitality extended to it should it should receive hospitality from uh, from such uh, people, even though we don't believe they're married. But that's different than attending the wedding. I mean, after all, just think about what happens at a wedding. You have uh, congratulations, you have hugs, you have everyone present affirming the rightness of the union, and that's the problem. Yeah, and you know, and it's that I think it's that pressure that you know for for some they feel a pressure of you know I might not agree with the marriage, but I'm going to go to support my loved one. And it gets interesting because you'll have people then have discussions about, well, should I be in the wedding? Should I not be in the wedding? Is that different from going to the wedding? Um, and then you have other people say, there's no, this is no big deal. I think, you know, it is, you raise a very interesting point for those who don't believe it's really a wedding. You know, is it the right thing to go anyway out of support or, or should you stand by that and not, and not attend? Um, well, and, and look, there's another, another issue that, obviously was related to this in a lot of the, a lot of the coverage and that was the Bruce Jenner and transgender um conversation that's been sure. going over the last you know few months here and this is something i think you and a lot of other people said they saw coming um it, it's a movement that many people believe will grow maybe along the same lines as the same sex marriage uh, movement grew what do you think comes next with this and what sort of position do you think it puts christians in well you know the transgender revolution is a much greater challenge to christianity even than same-sex relationships or even same-sex marriage and that's because the issue of uh, of gender identity cuts right to the heart uh, of what it means to be human and, and what according to a biblical worldview it means to be made a man or a woman and uh, th this is a much more direct challenge, because if you're looking at someone who says, I, I know I was born biologically male, but I, I claim to be a woman, or, or, or claim to be a woman for now, uh, you're looking at someone that, from a Christian worldview perspective, is, is basically very confused about who they actually are. And, uh, and from a Christian perspective, it, it, it is not an act of love. To uh, to contribute to that confusion, and uh, and that that's really difficult. And 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 by the way, the transgender revolution is an inherently contradictory, self-contradictory movement. 
the whole idea of this gender fluidity, it, it isn't even working amongst the people who are in the most doctrinaire fashion trying to, uh, to promote that revolution. And it's not working because you can't say that gender is completely fluid and that gender is really important in terms of differences between men and women. And, and of course, in terms of even the larger secular morality on the issue of, of sexism and, and gender stereotypes, I mean, how in the world do you deal with the Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner situation without recognizing that Vanity Fair magazine would not have featured uh, this individual except for the fact that the individual now presents an exaggerated form of female sexuality? Uh, there are all kinds of moral complexities here. What? How do Christians handle the issue? Because, and I know that you, know, you had said you had said this in our last interview. When you talk about any of these issues, you're talking about human beings, and you're talking about um, individuals who are facing these issues or dealing with these issues. How does a Christian respond to a loved one or a friend or somebody who says they're going through this, that they're transgender? You know, one of the difficulties in this is that there's, that there's just not a, a simple boilerplate response, but we do have some basic principles. We have to understand that gender is a part of the goodness of God's creation, and a part of God's gift to every individual is making us male or female. And we also have to understand that the Christian worldview uh, is a direct refutation of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism that says that our body is somehow a trap that's trapping our spirit that needs to be released. Our, our authentic being is trapped within this material body uh, from which is trying to escape. But the Bible refutes that. The Bible actually tells us that our body is a part of God's gift to us in our identity. And, and so just dealing at the, at the level of love, uh, there's no doubt we should respond with brokenheartedness and concern. I mean, that level of confusion is just a, a really tragic and difficult level of confusion. But that doesn't mean that Christians have any, any way to justify adding to that confusion. And, and so we somehow, as best God will give us sight, have to clarify with compassion. And, uh, and no one to suggest that's going to be easy. Yeah, I mean, these are, com these are complex issues, and I think they, they will probably become more complex for Christians as time goes on, because they probably are not going to go away. You know, one other thing I wanted to ask you about gay marriage, you know, what we saw with abortion in America was that it was a social issue that, and obviously they're very different issues, but that is very heated, very much in the same way as gay marriage is, and it's one that legalization didn't really solve. Um, people are still fighting about it. The battles are ongoing. Do you think gay marriage becomes something that is increasingly accepted and that eventually becomes um, only a, a group of Christians opposing it and religious people? Or is it something that will still maintain a large group of people saying, no, you know, we, we're still not comfortable with this? You know, that's a brilliant question. And, and to answer it, I have to go back to 1973 when the Supreme Court handed down the Roe v. Wade decision. And uh, pro-abortionists declared that the battle was over. And uh, even the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Blackman, writing majority opinion, said, you know, this will reflect the new moral consensus for the country. And, and I'll tell you, Billy, it looked that way for a short amount of time, even in, into the, the mid-1970s. It, it looked as if, well, the Supreme Court spoke, so that issue is settled. But as we know now, it was anything but. But it really didn't, uh, it didn't appear at first. You had to wait until you know, 1979, 1980, to see a pro-life movement really emerge at the national level. 
And uh, you ask a very perceptive question. Will it be that way for same-sex marriage, or will it just become a part of the moral landscape? I don't think we know yet. Um, I, I think it's abundantly clear that, that biblically-minded Christians can't go along with this revolution. We can't endorse what we know to be not only false and wrong, but uh, something that will, uh, will, will, will lead away from human flourishing and human happiness. But uh, as for the larger society, I, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the answer to that question plays out. What do you think happens to the denominations that have, you know, the Christian denominations that have jumped on board um, with gay marriage and, and other issues as well? You know, what's the future of those uh, religious bodies in your view? Well, it's really interesting to know that for the last, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Billy, I'm, I'm losing it entirely here. Can you hear me? I can, I can. <clears throat> you, st you still sound good. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try to restart that. No right. Yeah, we'll cut that out, no problem. Okay. You know, it's really interesting to note that over the last half century, it is the liberal denominations that have accommodated themselves to every new cultural and moral trend. It is those denominations that have been collapsing and dying. I mean, you're talking about those mainline liberal denominations losing members by the millions and, and closing down churches and losing churches that are simply leaving those denominations. And uh, I think joining this moral revolution is just one more nail in the coffin, so to speak. Uh, and, and, you know, let, let, let me be blunt about this. Those liberal denominations have put themselves in the position where no one needs them. If you're just saying the same thing as the culture, the culture doesn't need you. Now, uh, they may have some nice buildings with stained glass that people want to go stand in for a wedding or a ceremony or a funeral, but uh, in reality, uh, liberal Protestantism, liberal theology is a failed, failed experiment. Uh, I, I, it, it fails on every front. Not only does it fail biblically, it also fails to produce. I mean, those people who say you have to change theology, uh, change theology and change Christianity in order to save it, uh, those are the churches that are dying, not the denominations that are growing. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got uh, a lot going on with the book release coming, and we'd love to have you back again sometime. Billy, I look forward to it. appreciate the questions, and uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. The Church Boys. The Church Boys. Man, I hate these guys. Hi, it's me, Christopher Field. Hey, at least you, at least you hit your cue this time. And I'm here today to tell you all about a fabulous new product. Okay, wait a second. As you're trying to pretend to make your voice lower. Did you see Madeline's notes on Slack? No. <laughs> I'm giving Slack open. She's, as soon as we, shortly after we got done, uh, it says, for what it's worth, let's see, um, for what it's worth, Chris Field has one hell of a falsetto. I thought my brother was prank calling me. And I go, uh, that was William. <laughs> and she started laughing and laughing and laughing and then she writes you know I'm not sure why but it makes it more understanding <laughs> <laughs> sorry she's an awful creature she is she's really horrible uh, so you know that was our great interview and uh, <laughs> no honestly I thought he was great I yes, think yes, I think yes, that yes. he makes a lot of interesting points too. But I do think the challenge that a lot of people have is when you love somebody as a family member or a friend, you know, that you, you may not agree with the ceremony, you may not ag agree with the marriage theologically, right. but you might want to be there to support them. And I think that's the challenge that yeah, yeah. people sort of face is right. what do you do? Attending I mean, you could really risk a long-term rift right. by not going. But you also risk a long-term a long uh, undermining of 
of your witness if you go. I mean, if you're if you're willing to give up on your principles. What if right. they understand where you stand and you're just going? Because I try they to understand that if they understand where I stand, it won't hurt their, it won't bother them that I don't go. I don't know about that because I'm not going to endorse it. I'm not going to go. And well, endorse. look, and I get that, but you know, my my thing is this: if I have an atheist friend who I ask to be in my very Christian, you know, be in my wedding party, right? right. And they are willing to put aside their beliefs about faith to support me and and, it, and at least be there, even if they're not in right, the wedding. But, but it's an but it isn't an endorsement of your faith. It's an endorsement of your of your your relationship of your marriage, right? I don't. I, I've I've gone to atheist friends' weddings. That doesn't mean I endorse their faith. It's that I'm endorsing their relationship, that their their marriage that they're getting into, their wedding. Look, I'm my only point is it's tricky, and I think and I think we have to be honest that it's tricky. I, I think, think we're making it trickier than it is. I think well, I, I, think, I that think we in society make it trickier than it actually is. I mean, it's how many touchy. close? It's be touchy, honest, how many certainly. close gay and lesbian friends do you have that are, are very close? That you would say best friend, family member. Um, I. That is a conversation I have to have with you off air because it is not something I can put out okay. there. Okay. All right. So. Fine. But <laughs> let me let me put it at several. Okay. When when you are in a situation like that, and I think look, it, it becomes harder now that more people will be getting married who are gay because, you know, well or that's the assumption based on legalization. I don't know. I think my only point is I'm not saying that the right or the wrong aspect of what people believe morally is complicated. And there's definitely not a complication about what the Bible says on it. But I think it is complicated how you handle that in practice. And yeah. what I would say is I would not judge somebody either way for what they decided to do. But I think it's something that people have to think through very carefully and closely. Yeah. This is actually something I've had long conversations with some friends about and Christian friends about it's like what do you know what do I say and it's and, and again I think that I think we make I think we make it trickier than it really is it doesn't make it not touchy but I think as far as tricky goes it's either yes or no it's either I agree with it or I don't agree with it but it's but relationships can be touchy and relationships can be complicated but it's where do you you know where do you draw the line on and the other person has to be understanding too right don't expect if 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 a friend of mine was marrying somebody I thought they shouldn't marry, I also wouldn't go to the wedding. If it was a straight couple, including if they were virgins and Christians, if 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 you know if my sister were marrying somebody, were marrying a guy that I thought was totally inappropriate and I knew was inappropriate, and she refused to listen to me, and we actually had a, a knockdown, dragout argument about it, she would have to understand I'm not going to go and endorse this this marriage because I don't think it's okay. It has nothing to do with. It's simply, it isn't simply a sexual thing. It isn't simply a gay or straight thing. It is also an endorsement of, do I think that this relationship is appropriate? And am I going to applaud it? I mean, I would go to a wedding of somebody who I didn't well, of think course you would. they you should marry no, the You have no standards. So that's to support them. Because look, I don't have to, I don't have to agree <laughs> with somebody's marriage in terms of I'm talking about somebody I don't, I think they're marrying the wrong person. I don't have to agree with their marriage in that case to you know, be there to support a friend. Right. And I think and that's where the complication and comes th in. And, and it does, it does come in different when, it, if it's just somebody who's just kind of a friend and they're marrying somebody who's and, and I don't, they, they don't have the same standards I do, but if it were my sister who I know had, and you know, my sister, if it were my sister who had the same standards I have, and she was jettisoning those standards for her marriage in order to marry somebody that she knew she shouldn't be, then that would be different. Right. I mean, uh, I would expect that, uh, that she would understand. I can't endorse this by my, attending. That doesn't mean I don't love you, but anyway.
Well, we're not going to solve the world's problems. No, I don't have solid answers. I'm just not as firm as you are. All right, so speak, we got we got what two minutes left? Uh, maybe All right, so, two minutes. Two minutes. Speaking two minute of countdown. speaking of drama, our friend Mikey is in the news again. Tell people what's going on with Mikey. Mikey Weinstein is going after Christmas. No, okay. So the the bottom line, Mikey Weinstein is the Grinch. <laughs> what's happening here is there was an email that was forwarded by an Air Force commander's secretary on an Air Force base in Delaware. Yeah. The email that was forwarded, it was not penned by her, but it was forwarded, was for Operation Christmas Child, a Christian outreach part of Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham. Right. Dun, dun, and dun! Dun, dun, dun! And the controversy is that, you know, in addition to toys, they give these kids around the world who are underprivileged, they also give them a go the gospel message. Right, right. Now, because this is a Christian outreach and there was Christian language in the email, uh, 14 military members complained to Mikey Weinstein and the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. Mikey Weinstein fired off a letter threatening to sue if the commander did not disavow the email. He did end up disavowing the email um, and you know, saying we need to be careful what we're sending. We need to be careful that we're not putting religious messages out there. And in the end, that's how the situation was handled. And Mikey right. Weinstein called it a, quote, total victory. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Um, I wish we could. We had like a real here where we could play you being like, I like this Mikey guy. He's wonderful. I do like this Mikey. I guy. do like my. I, I do like. I, Mikey. I like Mikey too. You know, and I think that he picks. I think he picks some right battles, and I think he picks some wrong battles. And this is Definitely. one where, and again, I don't know. I I don't know. I, I certainly understand his point on why would you be forwarding this this uh, Christian gospel email? I, I I get that. I can get because they're looking for volunteers. I right. mean, but I mean that's what. But that's what this is. I mean, this is this is all about helping. You know, I don't know. Well, I, I think I would, I would people, have a problem. I would have a problem if it was a Ramadan box. I don't think I would. I think I would say, look, if you're going to allow it for one, you got to allow it for all, and you know. Where that gets tricky is that every atheist and quote unquote Satanist is then trying to send right. their own boxes right. around, and right. that's where it gets absurd. Right. Right. But if it's a legitimate religious exercise that is asking for volunteers to help, if there's a charitable aspect to it, right? Yeah. But I mean, if it, but do, if it were would putting, I like if, a Ramadan box? No, because I'm not a Muslim. No, right. But if they're putting if they were doing that and doing it in my government's name, my military's name, I frankly, I guess, I suppose, I. I at least my gut reaction would I was I have a problem with it legally speaking. I I don't know. I guess if they want to do that, if they want to send out. My thing is, if you're sending out, if I don't know. If you're asking for volunteers, though, right? I certainly understand Mikey's is, point. I understand Mikey's point. If you're just asking for volunteers, if you're putting this out there to say, hey, this is an opportunity for you to volunteer if you want to, that's one thing. If it's one thing, if it's another, if it's, if a commander or his secretary is saying, hey, everybody, let's get together and do this together and do this, that's a, a call for action. That's something else. But putting it out there informationally, I would have no problem with, regardless of the religion, as long as it's not a violent religion, right? If it's if it's somebody who's putting out a Sharia law pamphlet, then that's something else, I suppose. Like Chris Fieldism? Right. The exactly. religion exactly. of the... Uh, right. yeah. Religion of the day. Her heretics? Right. Something like that. So anyway, I, so I know you've got some sort of make-believe... Thing going on that you have to get out for so i guess we're done <laughs> i hate you and yes we are <laughs> merry christmas happy new year <laughs> happy hanukkah happy kwanzaa happy ramadan so we've got to get everybody covered are there any uh, are there any atheist holidays coming up we need to 
I'll point out. Um, just Festivus and, and Reason um, Reason Day. Well, that's Festivus is December twenty third. So we got a while on that. Got a couple months. They have another two one months from today. December. Actually, two months. Can you believe two months from today is Festivus? That's how close it is. I can't wait. Great googly moogly. All right, read your Quran <laughs> and your Bibles and the Blaze. We will talk to you later, unless of course something horrible happens and Mikey sues us out of existence. We'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Church Boys.